This is episode number 381 with Thomas Tull of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Nathan here. Today's guest is Thomas Tull, who's the founder of Tulco and Legendary Entertainment. So the first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Yeah, so I am basically unemployable. Uh, I have always had my own company and... Uh, you know, that's something I knew about myself at a fairly young age that, that I, you know, would be probably bad for both the person I worked for and for me. So I've always had my own company. And I sold uh, my last company in 2016 and came up with this concept uh, of a holding company that had a sort of tech center and that bought other companies that were in sort of sleepy spaces or spaces that uh, didn't have a lot of technical innovation and to be able to bring that wherewithal um, to, to bear. And so that is imaginatively called Tulco. And um, so uh, that's, that's how I, I got my current job is I made it up. Yeah. Interesting. So look, want to talk about Tulco, everything you're doing there with like, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway type model, um, but would love to start with kind of origin stories um, which you are very familiar with. So, like, can you tell us about what life was like growing up for you? Well, uh, you know, I grew up poor, for lack of a better way to, to say it. My mom had me at a young age and was a single mom and uh, worked at a very young age, shoveling snow, mowing lawns uh, to, to help her pay the bills. She worked two jobs and, you know, it was uh, it was kind of a, you know, I developed obviously tremendous respect for her work ethic. Um, you know, her mother, my grandmother was a hospital cleaning lady, which I can't imagine uh, that, you know, doing that for all those decades. So, you know, I just, I think um, 
found out very early that you need to rely on yourself. And, you know, there may be things that you don't want to do, but if you want to either move ahead or just take care of the bill in front of you, that uh, the hole is not going to dig itself. So so you kind of need to get to it. Um, And I also, um, for whatever reason, had a lot of intellectual curiosity as a, as a young kid. I read all the time. That's a habit that, that I have retained uh, and that I think was very helpful to me. Mm, interesting. And so your first business was the, in the laundromat space out of college, right? Yeah. Uh, I had a couple of different businesses in the little area that I grew up in because it, you know, it was economically challenged. A lot of industry had left. I had some small businesses that uh, an auto repair center, and then of course everybody always talks about the laundromats. Um, but uh, those were sort of my my first small businesses. But it taught you a sense of responsibility. Um, you know what it's like when you have to come up with new ideas and meet payroll and all those sorts of things. And uh, it, you know everything kind of grew from there. Yeah, interesting. So, like for example like the auto repair business that you started, like, like, like how, how did you get the capital to do that? Like, what did that look like? Or did you buy like, yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> well, I, I, um, uh, it didn't cost much money because I took over a place that essentially went out of business. Um, and so I think I had six or $8,000 to, to start with. I mean, a very modest amount of money. And it did well. And so then I was able to expand it and so forth. And then I sold it uh, and had the, the laundromat chain. And, and so, uh, you know, started very, very modestly for sure. Yeah, very humble beginnings. And what about your love for like comics and stories? Because, you know, you, you're obviously most well known for, for Legendary um, and some of the stuff he's done in, the, like in Hollywood is incredible. But yeah, where did that start? You know, I, I think I always loved escapism, and maybe it's because of the way that I grew up. But the ability, either through a movie, going into a dark theater and seeing Star Wars and just being completely blown away, and that escape pod, so to speak, or reading a comic book and looking at these characters that are they're exaggerated, right? Because everything in life, there are not generally black hats and white hats and, uh, you know, heroes that are, that are sort of perplexed by the, by these hard dilemmas that can, you know, sort of are framed through a comic book lens, but I was just always loved it. And whether it was, you know, I remember the first time that I read Lord of the Rings, it was just completely blown away by the story and the themes and these characters and how they had to come uh, together. Um, so whether it was any of those mediums, I, I just uh, really enjoyed it from a young age and continue to. Did you know that that was going to be something that you would do at a, at a really high level? No way in hell. No, I mean, there's, so I had, I was a fan of that stuff, but again, with where I grew up in upstate New York, there was no connectivity. You couldn't even, I couldn't have even told you how you would 
get to Los Angeles. I mean, it, you know, to, or, or approach that. So no, I had, I just knew that I liked it and was passionate about it. Um, I remember, you know, the first time when the matrix came out, I, I uh, was in my twenties and I went to a matinee on a Friday and I went out in the parking lot to get in my car and I turned right around and went back in and watched it again, just because I was like blown away by it. And um, so, but no, absolutely had zero uh, thought of, of being in that industry at any point. So coming back, you sold the laundromat, you obviously built up some chains. Then what happened next? Uh, then I sort of had the idea and concept um, a, a guy in my hometown who was an accountant wanted to buy these Jackson Hewitt tax prep services. And so I didn't have any expertise in that as well, but he had some money from some things I had done. And so we had six locations, then 10, then 18, and we're going to sell them back to the parent company, but then they were sold. And so I'm sitting here in, you know, 25, 26 years old with all these locations and uh, now I don't have a way out of it. So I thought, well, the only thing we could do is potentially go much bigger. Uh, so I developed kind of a roll-up strategy um, that turned into a, a pretty big thing. I certainly lacked the vocabulary at the time to understand that it was a roll-up strategy <laughs> and so forth, but I, I learned a lot from it. Um, and then that led to becoming, uh, for a period of time, a, partner in a venture fund that did tech investing uh, down in Raleigh, Durham area. Um, and then, you know, that, that sort of led to legendary. Ah, I see. And how did you come up with the idea for legendary? Like just to like, to start at humble beginnings, like, you know, really like local business owner, right? Like brick yeah. and mortar yeah. to, to, to moving into a space like this, um, like, yeah, producing films, like, like how, how, how did that come about? How did the idea even, how was that even, like, what the conception there? Well, I was at a dinner in Los Angeles and I was seated next to someone who was an executive in the movie industry on the finance side. And uh, I became fascinated with him describing how movies were financed and how, you know, what the capital stack looked like and then how, in the film business, they would get paid across multiple revenue streams over time. Uh, and then on the television side, got into that conversation. And what fascinated me at the time, it was a $30 billion uh, industry, just the movie business, and was a major US export. But there was no institutional capital around and, and among it, which uh, most industries of that size have institutional capital adjacent to them. So I, I kind of thought two, two things. The first was on the capital side, could I create a company that had a smaller footprint, but could make global content, uh, which I felt like with overseas expansion in China and across Europe of building more and more theaters, you would need more content. So I believed very deeply in the ownership of content and bringing a, a, a capital structure to bear that would be long-term in nature uh, and large enough so that, you know, you'd have the constitution to, to be able to play through. And then the second component is 
I didn't think there, I thought there was a way to build a company that serviced for the most part, the quote, fanboy, fangirl, Comic-Con crowd, people that liked stuff that I liked. And you could create a brand around that and become known for that. Uh, so that's where the idea came from. And then I put the business plan together and uh, knock on wood, it worked out well. And I was fortunate enough to meet a young director named Christopher Nolan. Uh, and, you know, that's, that was very fortunate, obviously. And, um, you know, it was, it was quite a journey. Yeah, crazy. Um, so did you use any of your like, did you use much of your own uh, funds to start Legendary or was purely just for, for VC? No, I did. Um, I, you know, at the time I, I had made, you know, a decent amount of money and kind of pushed it all in the middle. That was both important to me because if I, I certainly, anybody today, I invest in a lot of different things. And if the entrepreneur is unwilling to put up you know, their own capital and meaningful capital. So if they lose it, it's not like, well, I, I put, you know, I put 1% of my money in. Uh, it's important that they have table stakes as well. So, you know, and that was important, certainly to the people I first raised the capital from. Are you able to share just for context? Because like, I know some people watching this might be like, like, imagine starting a movie business and like, like, what, what does that look like? Like, what, what did that look like for Legendary? To this day, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done because I was my early 30s. I had zero experience in movie business, zero or television or media. Uh, my background was in tech, business, finance, et cetera. And so to go around with a pitch book and go to big equity shops and say, you know, I'd like you to give me money to make movies and television, uh, I think the average meeting lasted about 12 minutes. And then they'd offer me a bottle of water on, on the way out the door. Um, but what I kept kind of urging people to look at is I had taken 10 years of financials from the movie industry. They're called ultimates from the studio and was able to show that, look, if, if you were pretty focused uh, and you had low enough overhead in the right construct, there was a return here. This, this was never for me about, I want to be in the movie business. Um, I was passionate about movies and made movies I wanted to see. That was sort of my guidepost. But on the finance side, you have to be incredibly disciplined and thoughtful. And so, um, you know, it was, but it was a big uphill slog. That's for sure. Mm. So how much did you raise? Did you only do uh, just seed and, and then after that? Or? No, no, there's no such thing as seed. Our first movie was Batman Begins. Uh, so we raised, I, I think, just over half a billion dollars of, uh, of, of equity and, and then had a debt line. So, yeah, it was, you know, so the, the funny thing is when I think about it now, um, to, you know, sort of say to my 31 or whatever year old self that, hey, you got to go raise half a billion dollars and you have absolutely no uh, track record in this and you're just going to have to run around and get folks to do it. So it was, it was difficult, but you know, for the, I'm, I'm proud of the fact they all did very, very well. Yeah. Crazy. So can you tell us a story around 
how you met Christopher and like how the, like you 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 decide like it was Batman. Well, uh, the two things that I asked for, for Warner Brothers was our partner uh, is both for personal taste. Uh, I love Batman and Superman, and I felt like we needed to have tangible franchises to start the company. Right? You you can't just go to people that that really made a huge difference. Warner Brothers was an amazing partner right out of the gate. Um, Alan Horn, who now runs Disney Studios, ran, ran Warner Brothers and is to this day. I mean, he's an amazing man. And um, so, yeah, getting Batman and Superman was an enormous, uh, an enormous asset for us. And so Chris Nolan, they were already down the path with making the movie. And I remember the first time I met him, it was very clear to me, he's incredibly smart. And his, I mean, he, to me, he's one of the best directors of this generation. And it, he just stood out. And we were just, I mean, sometimes the ball just bounces your way and you have to have the intellectual honesty to recognize that. And, you know, because Warner Brothers hired Chris Nolan, we didn't, we just kind of showed up. Uh, and then I just said, I'm going to stand as close to this guy as I can. Mm. And at what point did you decide that you needed to partner with like, like Warner Brothers? The thesis was that, again, if I had enough capital and could draft off of the Hollywood ecosystem, including their distribution, okay, they, they have obviously a first-class global distribution system. And if I was truly independent, that means you have to run around, get your own distribution deals, cut television deals all over the world, home video at that time, and so forth. It's very different now. Now, you, one could... Uh, conceivably just say, hey, I'm going to do my own streaming service, which is still a very, very high bar. But back then, physical distribution was a very uh, important aspect. Otherwise, you could make movies, but who's going to see them if you can't get them out in theaters and so forth? Uh, so partnering with Warner Brothers gave us the infrastructure to draft off of. Uh, plus, at the beginning, before we started making our own content, uh, we, we had access to uh, invest in their movies and it was uh and they were they were great partners they were very very fortunate you said that um you raised yeah just uh you know half half a billion dollars to to do batman allocating that much capital never done a movie before like <laughs> that wasn't just for batman that was for our slate of films like that you know you're able to make a fair remember you're doing half warner brothers is doing half we're doing half so if Batman was a $150 million movie, we each put up $75 million. And then what would happen is the movie would come out, generate cash flow, and you would then use that cash flow to fund the next movie, the next project. So that money was actually enough to give you, because you really need enough movies to get into portfolio theory, right? You need to be able to stay in the game long enough that you can have things work sustain you know inevitably when a movie doesn't work um but yeah that that's that's uh that's how we went about it i see and and what do you mean by portfolio theory well meaning that exactly what you just pointed out if you raised only enough money to do one movie or two movies and one of those movies didn't work you're done right so you have to have enough staying power to make enough films to give you uh, a library, a sustainable uh, uh, platform so that, you know, because 
out of out of um, making all these movies, you're going to have your dark nights. You're going to have your hangovers. You're also going to have your misses. But you're not going to get there if right out of the gate, you know, you're unsuccessful. Yeah. So purely like you know, direct to consumer e-commerce, you've got your hero products and you're in the products game. Yes, and it's uh, you know it was high stakes and. There's nothing quite like the euphoria of a Friday night with a massive win, like the 300 or Jurassic World or Dark Knight. And there's nothing more helpless and lonely than a film that comes out and you just know Friday night, it's, you're done. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's just, there's no, let's call all the department heads. Let's come up with a plan. To, you're done. So it's, uh, it, was, it was definitely kind of a wild ride. Yeah, wow. Because, yeah, it's, it's not like an iterative product that you can just keep crafting. It's like you, one shot. That is correct. It's kind of binary. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business – And you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I'm curious, like with a Batman or a 300 or a Hangover, did you deep down know those were going to be winners or did you have any surprises with any? Not with those. Those just because we would test the films. Uh, Hangover, the biggest problem in the test is the audience was laughing so hard they couldn't hear the next lines. Uh, The Dark Knight was just, I mean... Chris just made an unbelievable one for the ages. Um, The 300 was extremely gratifying because everybody else in Hollywood had passed. Uh, Another young filmmaker at the time named Zack Snyder. And it was uh, an unbelievable feeling to just to, just to believe in it that deeply and have the film come out and be that big. So that, that was very gratifying. So, I'm curious around this idea of, like you said, like that feeling, that rush, right, of like, or or just like the highs are high and the lows are low, because that's that's similar to any business, no matter what scale, right? Um, Of course. I'm curious, did you ever think in the early days that it wasn't going to work or like did you ever think about giving up? I'm not, um, and and this probably isn't you know, sometimes is not a great attribute, but I'm, I'm not wired that way. Like I, I, there were scary moments to be sure. We had a first couple films were great. And we had a couple that didn't. And, you know, there's definitely sleepless nights and you're trying to figure out because then 
The other thing that is a lonely feeling is when you're making a very large movie, you know, tentpole global film, and marketing weighs in, you know, uh, uh, testing people weigh in, production weighs in, and then they kind of look down the table and say, yes or no. Um, and what's a little crazy about the movie business is you get a stack of papers called a script and you read them and then you have to cast and put a director who's going to bring it to life and the chemistry that has to happen, that magic alchemy between the actors and the director and then just what's in the zeitgeist at the time, right? It is there are so many things that are beyond your control is the best that you can hope for is to say, look, this is a great story. We've got a great filmmaker and we think we have a, a really good cast and we're going to run film through a camera and see if, if, if it all works. Uh, and then we're going to put it out in the universe and see what people say. And um, you know, but it's, it, it's also really surreal when, when something not only becomes a big commercial hit but becomes part of the lexicon and and you're you're out and you hear people quoting movies and you just it's a it's a very uh it's a very interesting feeling but yeah it was it was like i said it was quite a ride yeah crazy um just from that piece, and we'll, we'll work towards wrapping up the legendary piece and talk about Tolko and, and we'll talk about the exit as well. Um, I'm curious, just on that, I'd love to talk about kind of coming into an industry where you knew nothing about it. Like a lot of people watching this, early stage startup founders just about to launch something. And, and I think the industries that are disrupted by founders, it tends to be the case that they have a certain level of naivety um, and they don't usually come from that space and they really kind of shake it up. And that's what you, you, you have done or did do with, with the Hollywood space. Um, what advice would you have to people that are looking to come into an industry? And you're doing it now with, with, with Tolka with, with the strategic moves that you're making there. So like what advice would you have to founders that are looking to come into an industry which they have never been into in before? Like, like is there a, like anything that you would share? Sure. I, I would say I believe in informed risk. The only way that you're going to do something either noteworthy, however you measure that success, whether it's financial, whether it's you, you disrupt an industry, you cause social change, whatever metric, whatever your goal is, you have to make bold moves in order to accomplish that. At the same time, I think you have to be willing to do a lot of homework. And that, that's what I did with Legendary. It's what I did with Tulco. It's what I've done is to, you know, that old measure twice, cut once. But once you've convinced yourself, have conviction. You know, you, you're going to be told no all the time. You're going to be told, I can't tell you how many folks on Wall Street and people that, you know, I'll run into and they're like, oh, I had a chance to invest in your last two companies. I'm such... And so I think that there's this fine line between being foolish and going into something that all the data tells you you shouldn't, well-informed, reasonable people tell you, I don't think I'd do that, and you do it anyway. That's, that's one set of risks. The other thing is to say, 
look, I absolutely believe that there's an opportunity right here. And I've done the homework. I've convinced myself and I'm all in on this. Then you got to put the blinders on and just, and just go do it. And I'd love to touch on as well, kind of some of the innovative things that you did from a technology space. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things that happened on Legendary, which had a direct path to Tulco, uh, is I have a, a background in technology and on the marketing side with movies and television, it's been done the same for a very long time. It's very sort of cut and dry programmatical, you know, I'd sit in these marketing meetings and they'd hand me the same plan for every, every movie. And it's a lot of money. And I just thought to myself, there's got to be a better way than putting billboards up and newspaper display ads. Um, And so the thought that I had was how could we really, my question was how could I find people that were persuadable? So there are a certain amount of people that I could show them, you know, a certain movie and they're not going no matter what. They're aware of it, but they're not interested. There are other people that are going to go to the movie no matter what, because they're a fan of Batman or whatever. You don't want to spend any money on either of those folks. People that are, if they knew more or they were, um, saw the, the movie or the opportunity in the right light and would pay attention for a minute, those are the folks that I wanted to, you know, to talk to. Um, so I, I uh, got frustrated and wanted to build this platform. So Eric Schmidt, who is the uh, chairman, CEO of uh, Google at the time, was a friend. I went to Eric, kind of drew up what I wanted to build, found a boutique analytics shop in Boston, bought that uh, brilliant guy named Matt Moralda, ran the, uh, ran the group, and we were able to build an analytics uh, company inside Legendary that helped us find people that were persuadable and make thoughtful decisions and deploy capital, hopefully in a more sophisticated manner. And that experience and the yield uh, that, that we got from that directly led me to, huh, after I sold the company, how do I bring artificial intelligence, machine learning and data science, et cetera, to bear in spaces that didn't traditionally have access or a lot of innovation, and where could you get tremendous returns from uh, from doing that? So that's that's sort of the genesis of uh, of the holding company. Interesting. So um, before we move to Tolco, um, can you tell us around the sale of Legendary, how that came about? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I had in my mind, the world was changing so much with the rise of Netflix. Um, I was worried that the business model was going to be truly interrupted, disrupted, smashed, because all of a sudden you could watch all these entertainment options on demand, right? As many times as you want, whatever you want. And so the high bar of getting the car, driving to a theater at an appointed time, I, I still love that. And I think they're and I, and I and I hope very much that coming out of COVID, that if the theater going experience uh, remains as part of our, you know, our, our culture, but it's challenged. I mean, that's very very clear. So we had a big presence in China. We had a pretty pretty big brand in China, uh, and met uh, 
the CEO of, uh, of this company in China that was very large, like Comcast over there kind of a thing. And so they made an offer to buy the company. And, um, you know, so we completed that sale, geez, almost a little over five years ago now. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it was successful for me, for investors and, and so forth. And uh, so it was, you know, it was a, a good, good end to the, to the journey. Mm, wild ride. So um, did you take a break? after it or not really uh just because you know you got to be in motion and uh and i had this idea just kind of in my head that i thought would be an interesting new structure i, I didn't want to i'm not like a, a fund two and 20 person that's just not my my desire uh or, or maybe skill set so i wanted to build something that also gave maximum flexibility to owning these companies and deploying capital so that I didn't have to worry about vintage year fund or, Hey, I've got to do something now, even though it's not a great time to do it. And so finding great management teams to partner with, um, you know, and, and helping with the, the technology from the labs group. And so that's what I've been up to for the last five years. Can you tell us about like your guys' first company that you partnered with? How did that deal come about? Like, do you guys get, like, I'm, sure, I'm sure you got like ridiculous deal flow. I'm, I'd love to delve deeper on like, you know, the management teams, what that looks like around what the right set looks like, um, the industries, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say in general, we looked for uh, great management teams that also believed in the thesis. So it wasn't just, yes, I would like your check, but yes, I want to partner with you, use your resources and your tech folks to help us uh, deploy and build better technology. Um, and so, you know, we, we've had a number of things, uh, a couple that I'll mention, Figs, which is an amazing company in California. Two brilliant women founded this company who said that, you know, the largest I believe the largest uh, pool of workers in the world is healthcare, and essentially their workwear is not hasn't changed in a hundred years. And their their idea to combine uh, stylistic, comfortable clothing to that that you know some of these these people work sixteen hour days in, in you know scrubs or whatever they're in, and they care very deeply about their. Uh, you know, about their customers because of what they do. I mean, they're, they're life and death situations all day long. And they, um, when I met them, they were a pretty small company and selling direct using the, uh, not only the internet, but using machine learning and data science to uh, do a great job on fulfillment and so forth. And I just can't tell you how proud I am of the job they've done. They're now a very sizable company and uh, it, it worked perfectly. I mean, exactly how I envisioned it and hoped for. And that's really a testament to, you know, to their ingenuity and their work. Um, and then we knew early that we wanted to be in the insurance space. Uh, so we took our time and started two insurance companies that were artificial intelligent driven. And we partnered with a very large insurance company called Akashur. Uh, they're 
They're one of the largest brokers in the country and have a global footprint and now uh, use our artificial intelligence that we developed in our two insurance companies and deployed it across their entire system. Uh, and the results are, you know, are pretty exciting. So that's something that we're spending a lot of time on. Uh, we, we own part of a waste management company. We own part of a security company that uses artificial intelligence to do anomaly detection. And, you know, we're, we're looking at the next, you know, whatever the next sector is. And for us, it's not about, we, we don't do a lot of deals because we, in mo almost every case, we own the whole thing or a majority of the company. And it has to have an opportunity to be very large. Um, so that, that's just, you know, what we're focused on. I see. So um, how many companies do you think you would look to partner with uh, per year? One or two. Yeah, just because we deal with larger dollar amounts. And to truly effectuate and, and you know, to, to be able to truly move the needle and be helpful, you just can't be, you can't be stretched too thin. Um, so, and we try to look for industries that we believe there's an opportunity and then find the right management team within that industry. When it comes to the right management team like that, that, uh, that would be difficult because one, they would have to be open to change, but two, like when you guys are, when you guys own majority, um, or take it over, you're going to be deploying capital. So you, there, there's going to be rapid expansion. There's going to be all sorts of things. Um, is there any, like, is there a lot of coaching, training, or like, or do you bring in your own, like, do you bring in a mixture of, of some of your management team as well? Or like, how does that look like? Well, the, the first thing is, for the most part, we're not looking to replace management teams. We may, just like any other company that's going through a growth spurt, uh, you know, a CFO may not be the same skill set at the beginning that you need, you know, when you're, when you're a billion in revenue or something. So that's sort of normal course, but we look for management teams that certainly have buy-in on the tech thesis. And I think that we believe are, have the elasticity to be able to adopt uh, to change because the, the only thing that you can be certain of, and I, I think COVID is just accelerating all the trends that were already happening, that the velocity that happens now, the velocity of problems, the velocity of change, uh, challenges, opportunities, you, you don't have time to be ponderous these days. And so it used to be true, you know, they'd say bet on the horse or the jockey, not the horse, and the business plan will change, the management team. And I think that's always been true, but I think it's true cubed now. Because you can be absolutely certain that wherever you started the journey will very likely not be the same within a couple of years. And what were you able to do to adapt along the way, right? What, how were you able to not only innovate, but at the same time, especially in tech companies, there's so much migration among employees. So not only do you have to be a master strategist and to be able to adapt, you have to be adept at fostering a culture that will promote that, that idea and, and create that atmosphere that, that people 
feel like they can be opinionated, they can be a part of it, <clears throat> and then keep them. Because as soon as you start having success, some other startup is going to try to poach whoever you have. So I think uh, it's harder than ever to, to navigate through these things. Uh, the rewards are certainly massive. If you can, you know, we're seeing that with IPOs. We're seeing that with companies that take massive market share. Something that would have taken decades before to do, but that also presents an entirely different set of problems. And, and I think that's why you have to have leaders that are smart, ethical, uh, you know, inspire people at, that want to follow them um, and, and are also able to recognize, have pattern recognition, right? And understand very quickly. Not like, holy cow, what happened to us? We used to be something, right? Well, you, you can't let it get to that point. So it, it's, you know, if you have a lot of folks that listen to this or that watching, uh, that, that follow your show, that are starting companies, those are some of the attributes and, and some of the things that I think are useful to think about from the beginning. Yeah, no, that was spot on. Um... So look, we have to work towards wrapping up. A couple last questions. You mentioned something that was interesting is uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about your day-to-day um, and your mindset. Uh, one thing you said was that you've always read a lot and that it, that it, still to this day, like how many books or like, like, like how many books you reckon you read a week or a month or like? Well, <laughs> my, my problem or, or just my methodology is I'll read half a book and then get interested in something else and I'll loop back and forth. So I'm usually reading three or four books at once. And then there's articles, there's podcasts, and people are constantly sending you things. There's such a tremendous wealth of content now uh, that you have to pick and choose. And the other thing that I I think is, is worth mentioning is because of instant communication, because of social media, which I'm not personally on, but it takes people's time. Oftentimes, something will come up. You'll get a text. You'll get an email. What do you want to do right now? What are we going to do? Uh, or you start to think about a problem, and I almost feel like solutions, instead of really sitting down and saying, okay, what are we trying to do? Sometimes there's this fast food mentality of we have to answer there's a, there's a difference, I think, between moving recklessly fast and just being deliberate. And I think there is true value to taking time out of your day to say, I'm going to have good cell phone hygiene. The phone is going away. I'm not going to be plugged into anything. And I'm either going to read something that is not directly related to what I'm doing because it may spark an idea. It may inform some of my thinking philosophically, but I'm going to unplug and I'm going to just give my brain a chance to think and turn things over and not be in reaction mode. Um, To me, that's very, very important. So the time that you allocate for just thinking or just really just thinking. Yeah, because I think it's becoming a lost art. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, well, look, I won't 
I've got one last question and then uh, we'll wrap there. And that is any just kind of parting words that you'd like to finish up on and yeah, also where's the best place people can find out more about uh, yourself and your work? I guess the internet, I don't know. Um, I'm not on social or any of those things just because I, I, that's just not for me. Um, but uh, I, I've really enjoyed the, the conversation. I, I think the only other thing I would say, especially coming out of COVID, where the entire planet has obviously suffered in so many ways, and the human connection component is, is more challenging than ever. And the only thing I would say is, look, you're starting a company, there is no shortcut to the hours you have to put in, right? There's no shortcut to that. And at the same time, having a balance, right? Making sure that you're spending time, whether it's friends, family, with hobbies or things that you're passionate about outside of your work, because it's not just your mental health. It's not just quality of life. I truly believe that all of those things that make you a more, I hate to say well-rounded, but instead of just, I'm just in the work, I'm jacked in and I'm just, well, after a while, by definition, that is, that is going to change your, your lens in the world. And, and I also would just say that, you know, on a human sort of uh, thought that if, if there are people that you care about, tell them, stay in touch with them. You know, we're, we're all extraordinarily busy and have a thousand reasons with all the content coming at us and everything. But at the end of the day, the relationships, the friendships that you have, they matter more than anything, your friends and family and so forth. So um, I would just say that for hard charging people that are starting businesses, you're already going to have all of that stress built up. You're already going to That'll come for you, right? That, that comes with the territory. So just make sure that you balance that um, with the, the personal side and decide what's important to you and tend to it. Yeah, amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Thomas. I really enjoyed this conversation. You're extremely giving sure. and open and honest, crazy wild stories. Congratulations on all of your success. And uh, yeah, this will really help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.